At Coinbase, security is more important than anything else. Coinbase is a company that allows for storage and exchange of cryptocurrencies. Protecting banking infrastructure is difficult, but in some ways the stakes are higher with Coinbase because Bitcoin is fundamentally unregulated. If a hacker were able to siphon all of the money out of Coinbase accounts, Coinbase would have no recourse. This means that it's a much more sensitive problem than the regulated banking system where transactions can often be reversed if somebody hacks in. Philip Martin is the director of security at Coinbase. He joins the show today to explain why his love of complex and high-stakes security challenges brought him to Coinbase. Philip has some specific points around Coinbase and some more abstract points about security that were very useful to me. I really enjoyed this episode. Philip is an interesting personality and is somewhat different than some of the other people I've interviewed on Software Engineering Daily, perhaps because of his love of high-stakes security problems, and I think you're really going to like this episode. This is the third and final episode in our series about Coinbase. Our first two episodes covered the currencies of Coinbase and the fraud prevention techniques that the company uses. We would love to hear your thoughts on this series and any other suggestions or feedback you have. Maybe you have some ideas for other series we should do or just other topics and episodes or any general feedback. You can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Philip Martin is the Director of Security at Coinbase. Philip, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Let's walk through Coinbase's infrastructure by talking through some basic use cases. So when a new user logs on and buys Bitcoin, what happens? Quite a bit, actually. So when that new user logs on, of course, they're going through the standard username password check, as you with, with, with any site. At that point, they do go through two-factor authentication, depending on how they have it configured. At that point, it's, we start to diverge a little bit from, from what you see at every single site on the internet. We actually go into a system we call device verification that ensures that the device connecting to your account was a device you've used before. Or if it's not, we shunt you into an email-based approval workflow. We say, hey, this is a new device. Go to your email, click a link. We do that, and then it, it logs you in from there. At that point, you're sitting in your, your Coinbase account, and you want to, the question was, right, buy Bitcoin, right? Or Ethereum or Litecoin or, or, or what have you. So at that point, if you're a brand new user, you're connecting a payment method. This is a credit card, bank account. That gets into a lot of really fun payment system stuff that I'm really not qualified to talk about. Luckily, uh, we went to that with soups. Oh, outstanding. It is Those guys have an insane job. Every time I, I look at the complexity of, of, pay, of modern payment systems, <laughs> the ACH system, for instance, like, it just boggles my mind. Raises my faith in cryptocurrencies. So after you've added a payment method of some sort, at that point, you're going to submit a request to say, I want to buy in number of Bitcoin. Depending on the payment method, it's either instant or, or delayed based on essentially based on when we get the money. At that point, we would then acquire the Bitcoin on the market at you know the exchange that we quoted you when, you when you put the buy in, and we would make a ledger entry that says this person has this amount of Bitcoin. That Bitcoin would then go, or Ethereum Litecoin, would then go into our, our hot wallet. So we have a two-tier system for asset storage, digital asset storage, essentially, a hot wallet and a cold, and a cold wallet. The hot wallet means it is online and programmatically accessible to our internal systems, right? We can we, we automatically send Bitcoin out of it. Bitcoin goes into there initially. The cold wallet is is completely offline. 
the cold wallet has has no programmatic way of, of moving those coins out of that storage from our systems. It requires significant human intervention to get those coins out. The nice thing is that it's asymmetric, and depositing coins is super easy. So it's it's a really nice way for us to shunt shunt risk off into these cold storage systems. It's really analogous, if you want a, a real world analogy to to the time safes you see in in retail stores, mm. right where tellers or whoever can put money in a slot in top, it's pretty easy to get assets in. But to remove the assets, right, it's a more complicated procedure. There's like a certain time frame that's necessary. You know, a specific person has access, things like that. So you mentioned the fact that you're not really involved in the payments side of things. People who are hearing the word security, your director of security, they might be a little confused. Where does the payments fraud, anti-fraud system end and the security begin? Where are the partitions drawn? That's a great question. It's honestly a little bit fuzzy sometimes. The same techniques that fraudsters may use to, to defraud us of money are linked to techniques that you know people whose aim is account takeover may use. A lot of the same backend systems we use to mitigate risk of both sides. A great example here is our ID verification process, right? We use that when you add a payment, payment method to make sure that your name is the same name as on the payment method. And you have to go through and like give us a copy of your ID and we do some automated OCR stuff. It's pretty cool. We use that same system when you want to reset 2FA on your account. If you lose your authenticator device, for example, you'll go through and use, we'll validate your username and password. We'll, we'll, depending on how your account is set up, we'll validate any other method you may have attached. And then we'll say, awesome, give us a scan of your ID and give us a, a selfie of your face with your ID. Mm-hmm and use that to facilitate the, the account reset process. So it's a control that can, that's active on both sides. In general, there's, you've talked to Supes, right? There's a, there's a whole separate risk organization that's focused on that anti-fraud use case that we collaborate with extremely closely on the joint space between anti-fraud and anti-account takeover. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this term, account takeover. I've talked a little bit to Supes about this. I know that... Coinbase sees like the leading edge of fraudsters and hackers that are doing stuff. And one of these is this account takeover method and specifically the cell phone, like phone number takeover method. Talk a little bit about this idea of account takeovers and what that actually means. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, I think, a great public service announcement for anybody anybody who's dealing (laughs) in, in the technology space. We see this a lot. A lot of other companies don't see it yet, but it's coming. Yeah. So account takeover generically, I guess let's start at the very top and, and dive into it, right? Account takeover is is what happens when a, a third-party hacker is able to gain access to your account. This can be done a number of ways, but the most popular way is very, very non-technical and very socially engineering focused. What generally happens is these attackers will get a list of people they want to target. They tend to be high net worth individuals. They tend to be or people like associated with digital assets in some way. In general, these attackers are, are say, okay, that guy's likely to have a lot of money. They then go troll public password dumps, you know, using likely combinations of that person's name to figure out maybe this email is them, as well as depending on exactly what sites their target are, they may, they may also troll PII dumps, right? So they get things like your birthday and your mother's maiden name, things like that things that help them impersonate you. At that point, they, they will start pivoting into your online life. So frequently the first step is a call to your phone provider, your Verizon, your AT&T, whoever, where they'll pretend to be you. 
Mm-hmm. They'll use some of this some of this PII that they acquired to do that. Most commonly, the last four of your social security number is the default pin on these accounts. So they'll call in, they'll say, hey, it's, this is my phone number. I'm Bob Smith. Here's my last four. And I want to move my phone to from AT&T to Sprint. And AT&T is actually by law obligated to honor that request. There were a bunch of laws around phone number portability passed in the 90s or so. They have, they have essentially no choice in the matter once the request comes in. They'll go ahead and move it to Sprint, to the account number that the attacker specifies. And the first you'll know of this attack is a couple days after that request is made when the port completes and your phone number and your phone is no longer on the network of your provider. That's sort of the first indication mm-hmm. most people have of this mm-hmm. attack happening. So suddenly your phone can no longer make calls, mm-hmm. send texts, receive texts, anything else. Chilling. Yes. At that point, the attacker normally... That's most of what the attacker needs right there, right? So a lot of account reset processes for uh, other sites, like a great example here is Twitter, rely basically solely on phone number to to authenticate account resets. So you go and you say, hey, my account, this is my this is my email. It says, okay, I'm going to send you a text. Text, change password, good to go. The attacker's now in, now, now in those accounts. And they lever their way towards email, towards email access. That tends to be the center of most users' lives, both in terms of information that the attacker can get access to as well as hooks into other services. Mm-hmm. Once the attacker gains that, methods vary. It could be password reuse. Mm. It could be another common thing is people's recovery email address on their primary email address is normally one that they haven't even considered in years. They haven't thought about it. They haven't mm-hmm. secured it. Alumni addresses are very common backup addresses in this, in this case. And just ask yourself, if the linchpin of the security of my Gmail account, which has great security, Google does a, an amazing job giving users security options, is this alumni address <laughs> that doesn't even offer 2FA. Right. right. What does that say about my risk model here? Right. The attacker just needs to breach that. They completely bypass most of the controls on this. Yeah. And this is in general what the attackers are exploiting here, this, this asymmetry of protection where people, and this is true across the board, I think this is just as true of software engineers as it is of, you know, my mom or my dad, don't generally like sit down and create a threat model of their lives, right? right? Um, you don't sit down and say, okay, like- I do it compulsively <laughs> and I'm, I still don't do it well. Like I can audit myself and be like, I'm doing a terrible job. Yep. Yeah. And so, so even if you do it, it's really, really hard to do and do- consistently and do right and do all the time and make the and make the good security decision not the convenient non the convenient like performance or access or, or whatever well a large part of that is that social engineering attacks are so hard to model and defend against mm-hmm. absolutely 100 percent. i think in these cases in particular it's hard because it's 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 also relatively new right when we think about the rise the, the mass rise of 2fa started with SMS. Obviously, 2FA has been around quite a while, but the broadening appeal, and now there are lots of articles, and everyone knows you need to have two-factor authentication. And what do you do? Well, you can install an authenticator app and scan a QR code, and, and remember, you have to have, to have this thing with you all the time. You can buy a YubiKey, but then you have to like figure out how to do that, and it doesn't work great with you know your iPhone. Or you can get an SMS, which is really convenient. People get them all the time. The asymmetry there, to me, that's really interesting is Suddenly, SMS, the service that was never designed to be a secure transport for messages, right. is now has to be. It was just never designed to fit that use case. If you were sitting down in the original design meeting for SMS, I doubt anyone, <laughs> anyone ever said the word like 
message security really in, in, in this context, right? This is an interesting pivot into software security design, mm. right? Around this is this is not an uncommon case. This happens all the time. Mm. So you sit down at the beginning of a software project with somebody and say, okay, what's, what are you doing here? We're doing this. Okay, like here's the threat model. Here are the countermeasures. Here's how we think about this. Awesome. And a year later, you come back and they're like they've completely pivoted. They're way over here, and the threat model no longer applies. Uh-huh. Right. So it's 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 really interesting. So you're the director of security at Coinbase, which is a company that puts security before basically everything else. Yep. What are some ways that security permeates the organization in ways that a less security focused organization might not be permeated? I'll give you a fun example. So a peer company of ours in the space, Shapeshift, experienced a breach, and they were they're very public about it, and they had a they had a great incident response report write up. One of the the key vectors in that breach was that the the attacker, in this case an insider, was able to gain access to other employees' computers, plant backdoors, steal SSH keys, that kind of thing. When that came out, we're like, that's really interesting. How do we disincentivize that kind of behavior here? So we built a small Slack plugin we call Pwnboard. The problem here is, okay, so so say you walk up to your, to your buddy's unlocked computer at work. You want to do something to remind him to, to be secure because we all want to be secure, right? So you could change his background or whatever, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really do it for you. So instead, you open up a Slack, you type a quick slash command, slash pwned, and then the name and then your, your username. He gets a nice message on his screen saying he's been pwned. And there's a leaderboard where we keep track of this globally. You can see who's been pwned, who's doing the most pwning. We're doing awards thing at the end of every month, like who's, who's gotten the most pwns across the board to encourage this kind of awareness around the risk of unlocked computers. It's been smashingly successful. The incidence of unlocked computers has gone down drastically. We've had multiple people say that they're now like super paranoid about, did they lock the computer? They're not sure. They're going to walk back and they're going to check. Because, you know, they don't want to lose the game. Yeah. Right. A lot of companies, I think that would that wouldn't be taken nearly as seriously mm. as is taken here. Right. When we, when we rolled it out, we did a whole push around why we're doing it and, and the shapeshift breach sure. and like, the underlying point we're trying to make that I think was very, very well received. And so from an engineering perspective, let's say I'm an engineer and I'm going to push my code to code base, to, to the code base on Coinbase. Are there additional security precautions oh, where yeah. like I have to get, you know, because I've worked at companies where it's like, okay, you got to get sign off from two other people on your team before the code makes it to production. But is there also like a security engineer that has to take a look at it for Coinbase? So not all the time. So we hook into the software development lifecycle in a, in a few different places. One is up front in the design review. So, so as someone from security participates in, in every design review that goes on, sits down with the, with the team in question, walks through a threat modeling exercise, hmm. and sort of codifies like, hey, we're going to ask you to make these changes to the design, and here's why, and here's sort of how we think about the overall threat ecosystem of this service. Cool. Every time the, the engineers go away, they write code, Every time anyone does a PR within Coinbase, and we use GitHub Enterprise internally, there's a requirement for for peer sign-off. This requirement is escalated in line with the sensitivity of the service, right? Mm. So if you want to merge a PR on random random service, you're going to need a plus one from somebody. This this is actually enforced by our underlying merge systems. So if you go and say, I'm going to, I'm going to I propose this PR, what we generally do is we'll toss it in the, the team channel in Slack and say, hey, I got a PR up. Can I get a plus one? Someone us on your team will go. We'll do the code review. We'll plus one it. We actually authenticate our plus ones with, with Duo. 
so they actually type plus one or they type comments into the into the PR. They then going to do a push on their phone that says, hey, you just plus one, this repo, this commit, is that actually you? And we say yes. And then depending on how sensitive the repo is, they might need two or three. Wow. At that point, they can merge that PR. What also happens before they can merge the PR, obviously we, we run through CI testing. We also run through automated security scanning on every single PR and we'll block merges on PRs that fail security scanning. So this is mostly static analysis, right? So across Node and, and Ruby and our front-end JavaScript. But it's also package dependency analysis, or like what are the what are the status of the depths in this in this PR? Is everything up to date? And it's there's we also have just released internally a, a sort of a, a package credibility hmm. scoring system where we say, okay, hey, you included this package. There aren't any CVEs, like there are no known no known bones in hmm. this, but it doesn't. It, it's you know uh, the last commit was eighteen months ago. It has a dozen open issues in GitHub. It's not necessarily a credible package for you to include, right? We're not going to block a deploy because of this. It'll just show up as a warning. Yeah. It'll say like, hey, you might want to rethink this package mm. because this is like high likelihood for either some sort of package takeover attack where they can then target the users of that package or being so unmaintained that security bones sort of creep in the mm. entropy over time. So after all that goes through, passes stack analysis, it passes the dynamic, dynamic checks, it passes our grep-based checks of like, hey, if you're doing if you're doing a React project, I shouldn't see dangerously set inner HTML in your code, right? Or or if I do, you should like explicitly flag it, and we should know about it, and we should talk to you about what that mm. means, right? Passes all that, gets a nice green circle in in GitHub, and you then you can merge the commit in. So that happens every single PR as the service is nearing completion will re-engage and, and depending on the criticality and where the service is going and what kind of data and, and things it's touching, we'll re-engage and do a with a review of the threat model, make sure that like like we're talking about before, the thing that they built is actually the thing that they were going to build originally and the threat model still applies and all the same like controls were put in place and they were put in place in a way we agree with. And then potentially do like a deep dive pen test on that service, depending on the criticality and where it's going. Now I know you weren't at Coinbase since the beginning, but it's not long since Coinbase has been a just brand new startup, and brand new startups don't have that level of security that you just described. Do you have any idea what, like, what was the roadmap to getting to that level of security? I mean, there must have been a lot of initiative on the part of the upper management to get that those kinds of programs in place. I mean, I think it's what really sets us apart in that sense is sloppy cryptocurrency companies don't survive. They sure don't. Right. You can see this as a, a guy named Ryan McGeehan keeps a, a thing called the cryptocurrency graveyard. It's a GitHub thing oh. of his where he keeps a record and he goes into like, you know, reasons why of every single company oh, that's had, a cryptocurrency company that's had a breach. It's a great project, very educational, but sloppy cryptocurrency companies die. So I think what you're seeing is the pressure of any small company, right? Suddenly in the cryptocurrency space, you're holding a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million. You see the attackers coming at you time and time again, and you either sort of rise to that occasion like Coinbase did, like the early engineers did, or you fall. It's a crucible then. Hmm. And the upper management realized that early on, I guess. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's been central to Coinbase's ethos since the beginning. Our number one engineering priority, literally, if we stack rank them, number one, don't get hacked. So 
I meant to ask you this earlier when we were talking about social engineering because this is such a difficult area to defend against. Do you feel like this is a question more about the broader social engineer or software engineering landscape? Do you feel like social engineering attacks are increasing in sophistication faster than we can defend against them? I don't know that they're increasing in sophistication. Hmm. I think they're changing in targets. Hmm. They're going after different fundamental pieces of infrastructure. But the same fundamental attack attacker that's calling into Verizon and, and pretexting that they're you and they have this information is the same technique the social engineers have been using since the dawn of time uh-huh. to, to pretext into customer support to get information or, or, or what have you. I think the, the big difference that we see is the, the potential payday for attackers is, continues to go up either in terms of, of raw value or in terms of the value of the PII stolen or the value of, of whatever they're after as more and more of our lives are mm. available online. It's much easier for the attacker to convert that stuff to money, mm. whether it be PII or credit cards or Bitcoin. PII being personally identifiable information. Absolutely. Who don't know. And so I think that is a huge draw to the style of attacker. I read an article about some of the principles of security at Coinbase. So I guess I want to talk about some of those. One security principle that you pay a lot of attention to is layered security. Explain what layered security is and describe some of the layers at Coinbase. Yeah. I like to explain this in the context of a, of a Mike Tyson quote. The Mike Tyson quote is, everyone has a plan to get punch- till they get punched in the face, right? Layered security means start planning after you get punched in the face. Assume that you're going to lose the first battle and build in the redundancies and the controls and the, the, the layers of security that allow you to lose that first battle and still win the war. Mm-hmm. So I also like to talk about this in terms of you know, there aren't that many companies where it's, it's profitable to throw a zero day at them, at least like a major zero day, a zero day being a, a brand new exploit that's never been used anywhere before, right? If you actually, like, when you think about it, most places you see zero days used, you hear about them used, are actually by either governments yeah. or, or companies closely and, and aligned with governments. you're saying that because the cost of the zero day is like 500 grand on the exactly. black market to right? get. Okay. So government pays for it and they target somebody that's of immense value to them. Right. So your return better be more than $500,000 or a million dollars or whatever the cost of the zero day is. Exactly. I think Coinbase is one of the few places where that, that store liquid value, uh-huh. right? Where cryptocurrency, right, is is liquid value in a way that, that can't then likely be clawed back like yes. the traditional financial system, um, where it, it starts to become worth it to spend a zero day in yeah. the attempt to breach Coinbase. And when you start from assuming zero day, that's where we go back to the Mike Tyson quote, you're going to get punched in the face, <laughs> okay. right? And so the plan has to start from there, right? It, it can't. It can't start from this nice steady state of, mm-hmm. oh, we you know, got an IDS alert about a suspicious actor and blah, 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 blah. It has to start from the actor somehow landed on a front-end box. Mm. What do you do now? Mm. So then when you do that, you start to build in you know, where microservices architecture, which is pretty handy in this case, but you start to build in, build in internal trust boundaries around, okay, this is a front-end box. This can talk to these other things. Yeah. Those things are authenticated in this way. Requests like are you build in channels for the the second tier systems to confirm requests with other first tier systems. Really Wait, go into that in more detail. Yes. First tier, second tier. So an example here. Oh, these are the layers yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, okay. exactly. In terms of like the, the the first layer would be 
the service that's talking directly to to customers. Right? Yes, yeah. the, the the thing that you visit when you visit Coinbase.com. Internal layers might be the service that's handling that handles internal accounting or Bitcoin wallet management or risky transaction analysis or, or whatever, right? All services that, that that front-end service needs to talk to, but not something that needs to talk to, to customers directly. And so probably not the place an attacker lands. Mm-hmm. An attacker will probably land on a front-end system. Mm-hmm. Again, if we assume zero day in that way, it's ignoring all of the other potential avenues for compromise. At that point, what we want is is back-end systems that are that don't fully trust that front-end system. We want to be able to cross-confirm requests and make sure, did, did, it, did a user really do this or is this an attacker on the system? We want to be able to rapidly detect that attacker, mm-hmm. which again, microservices are, are, are a great boon here because they have limited functionality. They only do so many things. A traditional general purpose server environment, right? You might have a very active system with lots of different commands and processes and, and systems running at the same time. Inside of a Docker container, inside of a microservice, you just don't have that. Right? The, the list of, of normal things is extremely small. So we can build an alerting that's extremely targeted to anything outside the norm for that service. Hmm. And then we can build in controls on top of that around rapidly responding and effectively isolating and both being able to rapidly recover and effectively investigate anomalies that we see in the, inside the environment. Hmm. A lot of the shows that we've done around microservices we're not typically talking about security. We typically assume a secure system. I'm not sure why we do that, but typically about like preventing outages and stuff. But when we talk about security, and so by the way, in those shows, we a lot of what we talk about is observability. When you're able to, that's a, the buzzword of the day, but like when you you want observability because you want to be able to turn those log, turn your raw logs into monitoring details that you can easily look at in a dashboard and you know, anybody can glance at the dashboard and say, okay, here's my, the health of my different services. Okay, here's the request path. Everything looks good. Yep. Does that play into security as well? Like, how does observability fit in with security? Absolutely. It's absolutely critical. I generally talk about it internally as, as telemetry, but observability works telemetry. too. But in two cases, number one, in a microservices architecture, you tend to cycle these boxes more than you would in a, in a traditional, you know, sort of pets, not cattle infrastructure. Uh-huh. And in that sense, that's both good and bad, right? It, it forces attackers to move around, but it also means if, as the data and research has shown us, the, the mean time to detection is in the month's range, by the time you detect the actor in your environment, their initial entry vector has probably been redeployed you know, a dozen times. How do you walk that back effectively? How do you, you know, answer questions like, well, where else was the attacker if all that data is gone? So in that sense... Great logging, great observability, great telemetry I think is, is absolutely core to security in a microservices architecture. Mm. Secondarily, I think the thing that really helps security microservices is, is simplicity, is the focus in that, that's, that's implied by a microservice. A microservice isn't doing 10 things. It isn't necessarily talking to a thousand different services, internal and external, but has a much more simplified set of behaviors and actions. It's also from my perspective, better because it's simple. It's the, the code is generally much, much easier to audit, mm. right? You talk about a 4 million line, you know, monster of an application. Not even the developers know what's going on in that application, much less a security guy trying to audit it, right? You talk about a, you know, 200 line microservice. That's, it gets to be interestingly easy to audit. Now, the hard part then becomes the system complexity scales 
immensely. So the problem moves from how do I audit this 3 million lines of code to how do I audit these 3,000 microservices communicating with each other and trace data paths, right? How do you build a data flow diagram in a massive microservice environment? It becomes very interesting and challenging to, mm-hmm. to start to address that problem. Because you know, if, if you're a threat modeling enthusiast, the first real step of, of any good threat model is that data flow, data flow diagram. What are my inputs? What are my outputs? And how does it how does it move in between those two things? Okay, we're talking about building infrastructure and maintaining it and observing it. What Coinbase does for a lot of users is stores cryptocurrency, and cryptocurrency is electronic money. So you're storing it in a database somewhere. What is that database look like, and what do you have to do around that database in the action? Because We've been kind of talking about the services that are on top of that. Mm-hmm. So what is the actual storage model? of? And I know there's like a distributed cold storage and stuff like that. Maybe you could just talk about the actual storage model. So there, there are two pieces of critical – there's a lot more than that. But when you talk about like actual cryptocurrency, there's two pieces of, of information that's critical. One is, is the, the ledger, right? The balance is who has what money. And the other are the keys themselves. How do we, how do we safely interact both with the hot and cold keys that we use to actually store the currency, or in our case, actually sign the transactions, right? The accounts ledger is, is, is relatively straightforward, right? It's, it's essentially a, a really big database table. We have lots of controls around who can access that and how they can access that and from where they can access that. We have independent auditing on the accesses that occur in that, and we make sure that, like, the, the oh, hey, this balance changed from here to here. There's a separate service looking at that saying, well, like, does that make sense? Did we see that request come in separately? Like, is this is this all kosher? The much more complex undertaking is around the key storage, especially especially the hot wallet, right? The hot wallet is is you know we have n number of million keys. Every every address that's ever been used to receive Bitcoin into Coinbase, we have you know, the, the key for that address in the hot wallet. And the challenge is we have to be able to programmatically interact with these keys on a regular basis. To, to facilitate transactions in and out of Coinbase. But at the same time, we don't want an attacker to be able to effectively and easily interact with that if they've landed in our ecosystem. It's a challenge that not many other places mm. need to tackle. I think key management on this scale is a pretty rare thing to try to do. And it's a really interesting challenge. Mm. Okay. Well, can you talk more about like what that's been like evaluating that challenge and getting more sophisticated at it? Sure. I think like like any other big sort of engineering challenge, it's it's an incremental approach. Hmm. Coinbase started whatever four or five years ago now, and I'm sure the hot wallet design then is nothing like it is today, hmm. right? We think about this challenge in terms of again that perspective that an attacker's in the system, an attacker sitting on one of my servers somewhere, interacting with with our service, trying to learn more about it, trying to like make it do things that I don't want it to do. How do we make that hard for them and how do we force them to do it in a place that we can see it, right? So a fundamental aspect of our approach to key security is that an attacker shouldn't be able to extract those keys. In order to interact with with our keys, an attacker should have to stay in our infrastructure the entire time. It gives me more chance to detect him. Yeah. It means that he can't just take it and run and like send transactions later. It's a pretty important like core core design piece there. So we segment out key storage into a service we call Knox. It's unimaginatively named, I know. <laughs> so Knox's single and only job is to manage keys and sign transactions. 
So as as you send a Bitcoin transaction on Coinbase.com and you type in the address and whatnot, that percolates through the system. It you know makes changes in the accounting table. It talks to our Bitcoin wallet service. It generates a transaction. And then that goes to this very isolated system, Knox, to actually be signed. And until that point, it, it, it's all so much, you know, just numbers and logs. It doesn't actually matter. That transaction isn't good for anything. Mm. As it comes out of Knox, that's that's money at that point, as soon as it exits ex- mm. Knox. So we isolate Knox as much as possible. It, it is, I think, uh, last I checked, is literally something like 300 lines of code. Extremely easy to audit. Mm. Very straightforward and simple. Very locked down in terms of who has access to it, who can who can interact with it. I guess this is an interesting one. Interesting one. Intentionally fragile, hmm. in a way that so, if you're an attacker, yeah, you breach a system. Mm-hmm. You're looking around. You say, okay, what I want to do is I want to do thing X. You're going to try to figure out how to interact with a service that does thing X. Yeah. And while you're doing it, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to get a parameter wrong. You're going to get some things out of order, right? You're going to send a request to, you know, the, the, the wrong API endpoint. It's just yeah. one functionality. Knox is written to to issue 500s at the drop of a hat and throw pager duties when that, when that happens. Intentionally fragile. Mm. If you do it even a little bit, because a human shouldn't be talking Knox, mm. right? Fascinating. Programs are talking Knox. Yeah. Programs are not inconsistent. Programs are, are do it the same way every time yeah. in, in general. Yeah. So if something's wrong, it's probably because... Either someone messed up their code and they're interacting with Knox incorrectly, yeah. or a human's trying to interact with Knox and is making understandable mistakes because they don't know mm. it, you know they don't know the system the way we do. Mm. Interesting. Okay, zooming out, you have worked on some pretty high sensitivity companies: Palantir, Amazon. You did counterintelligence for the army, and now you work at Coinbase. What are the commonalities? Motivated attackers. Hmm. I really enjoy being at an organization that that has something to protect that, that attackers also want to get at and are willing to expend efforts to get it. I think it's just a much more engaging place to be hmm. for a security person. Some of the commonalities, I think, you know, they're all. Wait, sorry, uh, so you like that because of the stakes, or because it's just like gets your blood going in the morning? Like, I like it because of the challenge. So I guess, you know, analogies are great. So like the analogy is, you know, to, may, to maybe a, a more traditional software development context, do you want to write a service to do the same thing that 10 other services have done before you, it's slightly tweaked? Of course not. In a different way? No, you want to tackle a challenge that's never been done. Right. You want to tackle something that, that has no or very limited prior art mm. because it's exciting. It's mm. interesting. You get to break new ground. You get to see new things, experience, gain new experiences. I think it's it's very very similar for me in security. the The motivating thing for me is that there's someone else on the other side of this equation in security. There's another human out there somewhere, right? That's that's that is trying to do something that I don't want them to do. That's and that human is is motivated and they're creative. They're trying new things. They're evolving as I throw countermeasures at them. They don't like go away and go home and cry. They mm-hmm. say, "Okay, well that sucks. Let's try something new." Right. The only way to model adversaries, in my opinion, is as just as smart and as motivated as you are, if not mm. more so. And that, to me, is really cool. Mm. Is it game? Does it feel like a game? Absolutely not. Okay. When you say game, I, I get the context of like the outcome. Maybe it doesn't does not doesn't matter, but is like huh. less important. You know, you you, play, you played a good game. Congratulations. Right. Whatever. I take it much more seriously than that. Got it. Interesting. So, was there anything? 
I mean, like, unique about the army? Because that, that's very interesting. I haven't done any interviews with people who are in military. Mm-hmm. What was unique about that? So I think that's actually where I originally got that sense of... The seriousness. Of mission. Mission. That desire to be someplace where I perceive the thing I'm doing really, really matters. It matters. It matters for the company. It matters in terms of, like, significant outcomes. You get a lot of that in, in the military, right? You, and to find that outside of the military, I think, has been sort of my search ever since. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, I know, you know, I, I listen to some podcasts with with military people, and it's and I've read some books recently about military stuff, and, like, I don't know if this is what you were working on, but, like, communications in the field, for example, is just, like, so complicated. And it's, Absolutely. like, totally unlike almost anything in uh, like Silicon Valley software oh, engineering. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the the amount of friction introduced by trying to do something in a war zone is I think it's hard to overestimate how hard that is. Yeah. Just I mean I mean from the simplest thing like I mean obviously limited electricity yeah. or or maybe like more apropos inconsistent voltages. Right? You, you plug your laptop into that and you're going to fry it eventually. <laughs> You know, it's the, the just the amount of of things that you would that, that would never occur in day to day life in the U.S. that occur in that environment makes doing even the most even the most simple jobs extremely extremely complicated. So that raised the bar pretty high for the companies you would be willing to work for after that. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't think they're directly like you can't you can't make a one to one comparison, right? Of the military to the civilian world, they're just they're 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 apples and moon rocks <laughs> but what i took away from it and everyone takes away something different right but what i took away from it was that connection to to the outcome to the mission that ability to get really engaged in in what's going on and if it's an important enough problem be able to attack it with the resources it deserves mm-hmm. right as opposed to like hey that's that's a problem i guess it kind of matters let's try some stuff right but like we're not gonna go crazy. We're a photo sharing we'll, app. Who we'll, cares? We'll, we'll time box this at two weeks, right. And like then move on. <laughs> and if it's th- if it's three quarters finished, whatever, right? That's just not motiv- motivating to me. Yeah. So the last interview I did was with well, Linda and and Jordan about just like kind of the direction Coinbase is going in, kind of the Coinbase product and different currencies. And we talked some about the fact that there's Coinbase and there's also this exchange. Do you work on the security for the exchange as well? Yeah. Okay. What's is there anything significantly different than what we've been talking about that for the, for the exchange? No, the backend systems are, are are very very. In fact, in some cases, they're the same systems. So there's there's not a real difference to us mm. across the two. I think there's some there's some like security UI differences because our protocol users are different. So we want to present security to them in different ways. But yeah, there's not they're not core backend differences. Mm. Do you feel like does the security issues that you have to deal with change as volume scales up, or do you feel like the like trading volume or purchase volume, or do you feel like that the techniques that you have in place security wise are scalable? They're very scalable. I think the issues we deal with in terms of volume is around operational management of, for interest, for example, the percentage of funds we have hot versus cold. Right, we don't want to introduce transaction delays because we misjudged how much like needs to be online at a given time. As volume scales, it becomes more unpredictable. Mm-hmm. That, like that's that's the major thing I would point to that that has changed with volume. Mm-hmm. 
to close off, you know, just a quick discussion of some incident response. You wrote about the CloudBleed cloud bleed bug. We did a show about CloudBleed, and this was, for, for those who don't know, this Cloudflare, there was a bug where it was spouting data everywhere, and people who are curious about that can, can go back to that episode. But you audited kind of the, what did this affect Coinbase. What was that auditing process like? And just as an example of incident response, yeah. how does that exemplify how you look at things in Coinbase? So this is, it was an interesting one because it was almost entirely out of our control, right? This was an incident response where we had to work very, very closely with, with Cloudflare in figuring out like what's, what's the impact, what's the scope. Cloudflare did really an outstanding job working with us in both being very transparent, they did this in their, in their public report too, about what happened, like what the impact was, what the potential for impact was, as well as, you know, they, they had a team running 24-7 around searching the internet and working directly with the major search engines and archival organizations to remove content that was that was potentially an artifact of CloudBleed and then directly disclosing to us when they found something that may be Coinbase-related. We obviously did our own due diligence in searching and, and, and what honestly we found was that Cloudflare was doing this at an insane rate. Every time we found something that might have been Cloudflare-related by the time we came back, it was purged or gone. Wow. Or they were really hustling on this. And hmm. I give them a huge amount of credit, yeah. credit for that. But because, and this is a really interesting sort of case study, right, When it, in a complete third-party breach, yeah. right, where we don't have necessarily audit logs from them. Yeah. We don't have controls. There's, yeah. there's no amount of like, there's a limited amount of lockdown we can do, right? So so as soon as we understood the bug, we were of course engaged with Cloudflare and like, hey, what? let's let's work together to search for this stuff. And we also proactively rolled every session that might've been impacted in the time window they specified. So the, the nature of the bug was that the likely, like the most likely stuff that was damaging that, that would have leaked are were, were gonna be things like cookies or others like similar tokens, right? So we looked at that and said, okay, let's roll every session. Let's go take a look at API key usage logs and notify potentially impacted customers there of like you used your API key in this time frame. It may or may not have been compromised. We suggest you roll it. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to proactively link rolling sessions is easy, right? Users get logged out, they get, they get logged back in, good to go. Proactively deleting API keys um, could in some cases imperil businesses. Mm-hmm. So we didn't want to get as aggressive with that as with the sessions. This sort of sort of walks back to a a risk adjusted incident response process, right? We could have gone, you know, full bore, invalidated every single API key, invalidated every session, forced a full user based password reset. But based on the specific incident in question, we wanted to do the thing that was both safe and least intrusive to our users while giving them the option to ramp up their response if they felt it mm. was justified based on their risk profile. So that's why we rolled sessions, low impact to users. Mm. We notified potentially impacted API customers and we did the, the public blog post to help get the word out to, to, yeah. to users. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting case study because it's simultaneously makes you optimistic and pessimistic. Like Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, pessimistic in the sense that like, oh, oops, a cloud service and there's no control over what you can do to respond to it as a customer of that service where you had data breach, but optimistic in the sense that their response was so beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, they're, they're a great example. Although the underlying sort of concept here, that the, the third-party vulnerability management and third-party breach response is, I think, 
a huge area of risk across the board and only becoming more so. Yeah. I think this is especially true for for startups. The siren call of, or small companies, the siren call of this third-party company where you can just outsource this thing to. This is an important thing, but it's a thing that's not core to your business and they'll take care of thing for you, right? Until they don't anymore. Until there's a breach, until there's a problem. Mm-hmm. The small organization, it's hard to spend the resources to know what third parties you should trust yeah. and what third parties might not be might not treat your data like you would treat it. Yeah. Like that's the fundamental bar I hold for for our vendors when we talk to them is I'm going to give you this data. Okay, you're going to do this thing for me. That's awesome. Are you going to treat it like I would treat it if I held it in my own systems or better? And are you going to cooperate? Are you going to be logs? Blah, blah, blah. Like there's yeah. a bunch of sort of ancillary questions that roll, oh, go along with that, interesting. right? But like the fundamental bar I want to see is are you going to treat it like I would treat it? Mm. Okay. Well, good build versus buy yeah. evaluation. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks, Philip. This has been a great conversation. really yeah. enjoyed it. Me as well. Okay, thank you.